Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, I'm Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 382 of the podcast. It is September 24th, 2020. I'm really excited today. My guest is the Tom Peters, and I think that's probably, he wouldn't make me say it that way, but that's the way I feel about it. He is the Tom Peters. He is, of course, an author, a speaker, a consultant. I've been a huge fan of his since I first saw him give a talk in the late 90s, and we'll touch on that in the, you know, the beginning of our interview. Um, but we're going to be talking about one of his really uh, recent themes. He's been tweeting about it a lot and writing about what he calls leading amongst the madness of COVID-19. We're going to be talking about a document he calls his Excellence Manifesto 2020. And you can find that. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes at leanblog.org slash 382. Tom gives away a lot of material for free at his websites, tompeters.com and excellencenow.com. Um, so Tom is really well known for his books, including In Search of Excellence, which was published in 1982. Uh, Dan Pink, another great author, who was my guest in episode 107, I've heard him say that this book, In Search of Excellence, really launched the major mass market popular business book genre. Um, Thriving on Chaos, Liberation Management, The Pursuit of Wow. Those are some of the other books uh, that Tom has written. As far as his background, he's a civil engineer uh, with a degree from Cornell. He served in the U.S. Navy. He earned an MBA and a PhD from Stanford. He worked uh, in the Richard Nixon White House in the Office of Management and Budget, and uh, he worked for um, the consulting firm McKinsey uh, for almost a decade. And I think much of what Tom says in our discussion here, um, beyond being really, I think, um, thought-provoking and engaging and a lot of fun, will resonate with lean practitioners in the audience. His focus on people, the need for leaders to really love leading people, his concept of management by walking around, and um, we'll, we'll also talk about why good management methodologies often start to fail when they get too codified and bureaucratic. So um, I think this episode is a lot of fun. Um, as with uh, his writing and his tweets, Tom often speaks in all caps, and part of that is that he does curse a couple of times. It's mild cursing. It, didn't, it doesn't offend me, but if you're listening to this in a workplace, uh, be aware of that. If this was a movie, it would probably get a PG-13 rating, um, but I still need to give this the explicit label for the purposes of Apple Podcasts. So um, I hope that doesn't get in the way of anybody um, diving in and listening here to uh, my conversation with Tom Peters. Well, so again, I'm really excited today. We're joined by, I think it's fair to say, the legendary Tom Peters. We might also use words like uh, what, incorrigible or um, I don't know. What, what do you prefer, Tom? <laughs> well, legendary is sweet, but I'm not exactly young. I mean, I got some big lifetime achievement award and my wife and I had just been to some summary Monty Python thing and I got a t-shirt and I wore the t-shirt actually at a tuxedo event. And the words on it in very big letters were not dead yet. And I said, the definition of a life, that's the definition of a lifetime achievement award. Wow, he's still around? So, uh, you know, 
you know, I'll, I'll take the legendary if you insist, but uh, the always fresh. Always fresh. Well, you look like you're doing well. And somebody told me I did have a little bit of a, of a, of a turkey. What do you call it? The turkey. Well, I don't want to say. <laughs> Good. Don't. And then we, and then we, so we can start this on the right foot. But, uh, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for being here, Tom. And, you know, I, um, as, as, as I mentioned to you before, um, my first real exposure to ever seeing you speak really stuck with me. And in particular, there was a story that you told about Motorola and Six Sigma. It seems unfair of me to tell the story. Or do you, what, what do you refer from that story? Well, so in, in, a, in a nutshell, and, uh, you know, you were talking about Six Sigma and that uh, Motorola had taken that so far, you felt like they had gotten off track because they were bragging about how their cafeteria had chocolate chip cookies where the number of cookies per chip was so tightly controlled within Six Sigma boundaries. Why, why, why did that seem a bit crazy to you? Well, one of the, when one of the GE alumni went to work for 3M, which along with HP and 3M has weathered the storm better than HP, was probably, 3M was probably my favorite company in, in search of excellence. And, you know, I was a McKinsey guy and I've been working with people like Chase Manhattan. And these were, first of all, they were people from Minnesota and Minnesota lives, lives up to its Minnesotaism with some problems associated therewith. Uh, and, the culture in the place was, in retrospect, what you'd expect. It was very innovative uh, and so on. And a GE guy left and brought Six Sigma into 3M. And I remember reading the story when he left. Uh, I think it was a cover story in Bloomberg Business Week or something. And it was how Six Sigma almost killed 3M's innovation capacity and all of these systems all these systems that you know make it to maturity are started for good reasons they do good things and then they calcify mm. i mean you know year, years ago a friend of mine at mckinsey did a study on the top 1000 publicly traded companies in the united states and over a 50 year period none of them outperformed the market. So the best of the best of the best calcify uh, and a brilliant productivity and quality improvement tool becomes a bureaucratic nightmare. And, and frankly, uh, it's not an exaggeration to use the word inevitable. And you, you, know, you just, you can't, I mean, it's like, it's like the following in a trivial way. So my wife and I had a house renovation a few years ago and there was a fabulous guy who was the head carpenter. And we got to talking about this and that. And he has to go to school to renew his license. He has to go to his school annually for a couple of days to learn about all the new building regulations locally and in the state. And I had read something that said, you know, you read through public regulations and we all like ah, damn public bureaucrats, none of them not true. Very few of them are stupid. The stupidity comes when one gets piled upon another gets piled upon another. And suddenly the place, you know, is just literally locked up. 
And the other thing, and, and this is very unfair to a lot of incredibly talented people, and on top of that, I am a smart ass. Uh, agile is good, comma, agile was good until they started capitalizing the A. You know, it's 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 when a damn good idea. Uh, and I'm sure they're great agile coaches, but an agile coach with a capital A and a capital C, that bothers me. Yeah. You know, it was that my old friend is an MIT professor. His name is Michael Schrag, relative to innovation, wrote an entire book that had one of the most wonderful titles known to humankind. It was called Serious Play. And, you know, the whole notion was, yes, we're in a damn serious business, but there's there's got to be a bit of playfulness to it. Mm-hmm. And I think, as I told you, when we were doing our little warm up discussion, I just finished a big book on Chernobyl. Right. And, you know, the systems that existed within that plant weren't stupid, but they just had been designed so effing tightly uh, that human beings couldn't intervene at the right time. And, you know, they had they hadn't taken the human they hadn't taken the real human factors into account. They had taken, as AI will do, every damn human factor known to humankind, comma except the, oh, shit, what if you have an epidemic that only comes along once every year, every century, sort of. And so that's, that's my difficulty is, is the stuff, you know, I, I, when I was talking to big audiences sometimes and giant companies, I always say, hey, you people ought to be playful. You have a losing hand. Your company is going to go downhill. Mm. And so, you know, have fun on the trip down. <laughs> And I'm, you know, half facetious, but also very, very unhalf facetious, but you, or you, half non-facetious. Yeah, but you, but you make me think of, and this is going back to even, you know, W. Edwards Deming and other others who talked about when you have good people in a bad system, a bad yep. system will defeat. I'm paraphrasing. Bad system will defeat good people. I saw the HBO series on Chernobyl, and the one thing that's striking is the denial in leadership of bad news, trying to bubble its way up and, and that not happening, changing direction a little bit. Well, let me just say, let me just say in just to reinforce what you said uh-huh. is, and maybe it's only old people like me who remember the Cold War, but people who deny what's going on, you know, sounds like the Soviet Union. Well, it bloody well happens in any company of probably, frankly, over 10 human beings. Sure. Uh, and it certainly happens in the big corporate bureaucracies. I mean, who, who wants to be the, in a, in a place that has eight levels of middle management, who wants to be the one who tells the executive vice president that the world just came to an end? Or even on a smaller scale, um, hospitals. So I spent, I've, I've worked a lot in healthcare the last 15 years. I've seen what you've written and shared about healthcare. My God, and you're still here to talk to us. <laughs> I'm, I'm still here, but we're, we're trying to change that culture of executives being in denial or not wanting bad news to go upward. That's where, you know, when you've shared and I think rightfully ranted about the number of people harmed and killed by medical error, yep. what a shame that is. By, to use the sports term, by unforced errors. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's not the ones that are inevitable, but the ones that, could be prevented. I, I just want to toss something in when you said that, which is consistent with what we're talking about. Well, in all respects, uh, there was a study 
I live in Massachusetts now. There was a study in the Boston that was that was reported in the Boston Globe, done by Massachusetts General Hospital (MGH), which is one of the top five hospitals in the United States. Blah 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 blah. And one of the things they discovered is when nurses are at bedside now, they are always carrying a tablet, and they have data entry requirements. And the measurable conclusion was that nurse-patient eye contact has gone down by 70%. And that makes you want to weep because, you know, the, re the real reality is hard psychology, hard psychological research. Eye-to-eye uh, -eye contact is, frankly, at least as good as penicillin or whatever your, your favorite miracle drug is. But, you know, well, and then the part of it which you will appreciate as somebody who works with healthcare then the part which makes you really want to, you know, punch the screen, uh, about 75% of what those nurses are entering is billing data. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, that's, that's when you want to, you know, start ringing necks. And doctors often want to ring necks of. Oh yeah. Well, well, yeah, there was a proof of that, which is tragic. Uh, and I read this a few years ago and I would assume it's even gotten worse is something, and don't trust me entirely, but I'm pretty sure of what I'm saying, something like 80% of doctors would prefer that their children not go into medicine. I've and heard that excuse, excuse my language, that's an oh shit kind of thing. Right, right, it's, it's sad, it's really sad. And the levels of burnout that you see, yeah. and I guess then that leads to them wanting to tell their children do something else. Yeah, do, yeah, find find something else. Yeah. So, um you've of all the things that, that you publish and you make available on your website, one of the most recent is what you call your Excellence Manifesto 2020, the 29 number ones. And you know, I'd like to explore some of those, but how much of that document if any changes now that we're in the midst of a pandemic and social unrest um around uh race and other important issues? Is, is, is leadership and what's required from leaders consistent or is, has some of that changed right now? Well, it's not any, as easy a question to answer as it may seem. The answer is everything has changed and I hope this doesn't sound as arrogant as it might, but the stuff that I've talked about for the last 40 years, people stuff, et cetera, uh, has now gone from optional to required. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I really don't know about enough about your audience or what's appropriate or not, uh, but I've said leadership advice in the age of COVID-19, and again, my apologies if required, don't be an asshole. You know, on a slightly more polite uh, language, I, I wrote something which is in an updated version of what you've read that I called it the uh, COVID Leadership 7. And the COVID Leadership 7 is be kind, be caring, be patient, be forgiving, be positive, be present, walk in the other person's shoes. And, you know, it, it's... It might, you know, it might sound like it came out of the, you know, I was raised a Presbyterian, like it came out of a Presbyterian handbook or something, but it's really true. You know, 
I mean, my evidence says if you treat people incredibly well, you make an incredible amount of money. And, it, you know, I'm not telling you this because I want you to be a better person. I want you to get rich. And that's kind of my storyline all the way along. But this is the real deal. And it's not the question you ask, but it's just something I get off on these days. And this is in that list as well. Uh, hire people with pretty damn high EQs. Uh, you know, one of my favorite examples that I used in my last book came from a guy by the name of Peter Miller, and he heads a, uh, a biotech company that's called Optinos, and I think my pronunciation is correct. And his one-liner was, we only hire nice people. Mm -hmm. And the real key to this for our listeners, viewers, is that he said, look, this is, he didn't use my words, this is an incredibly sexy business, and I need somebody with a PhD in some, you know, some obscure realm of molecular biology. But he said, I learned something. Give me the most obscure degree in the world. And actually, there are a lot of people who have that degree. And don't hire the jerks. Yeah. And, and, and his line, which, again, I think is exactly accurate, is he, and, you know, I think he's got a couple of hundred people. So it's, you know, not GM, but it's also not two people in a garage somewhere. He said, I really believe that one bad apple can spoil the bushel. Right. And in his case, which, which I love, is I'm the person with the PhD and my, my CV is so good that you, Mr. Miller, CEO, are weeping with joy and would desperately like to offer me the job. Well, even though I'm CEO, even though you're CEO, you can't yeah. because they have a rule and the rule is run the gauntlet. And after you and I are finished, uh, and I don't remember whether he texts the people around or not, but it's irrelevant. Uh, Tom Peters, the genius, will have five to 10 minute conversations with about a half a dozen people who will be the receptionist, the 27 year old in the finance department, Indeed, somebody in R&D and so on. And any, any of those people can blackball him. And I just, I, I, you know, we don't have forever. And I, you know, I hate to go on about this, but That's I just right. loved it so much. But back to your health care, um, almost every darn list I see, and I suspect you would agree, uh, if Mayo Clinic's not in first place, it's never lower than about third place. Right. And relative to exactly what I said, there, there's a wonderful book out. Author's names I don't remember, book I remember exactly. It's called Management Lessons from Mayo Clinic. Right. And one of my many favorite things in the book is, once again, I, Tom Peters, the greatest ocular surgeon in the history of humankind, is interviewing you. And in this case, maybe you're, you're not the CEO, you're a senior HR person or something. And, and I'm interview, you know, we're interviewing. And one of the things I don't know and maybe we do it on our iPhone or do it with a, you know, with, a, with a pen on the back of our hand, as as I am speaking to you, you are counting. And you are literally, this is not a figurative comment, you are literally counting the number of times that I use the word I mm -hmm. and the number of times that I use the word we. Mm -hmm. And to exaggerate a little bit, if the I's beat the we's, Tom, the greatest living human being ever known in the history relative to that thing. You don't 
get the you know you don't get the job. And they trace it back, which is really cool, a uh, hundred years to Dr. Mayo of the Mayo Clinic, and he he invented is silly. He invented, which I'll use anyway, what he called team medicine. Mm-hmm. And you go through the book, and you and you really want to you know really want to weep. Uh, you know, there's a story, for example, of a kid, young resident, and the young resident gets a call on his pager, his iPhone, or whatever the hell it is, and on the other end of the line is one of their top surgeons, and the top surgeon is in the OR, and the top surgeon says to you, the 28-year-old who just finished med school a couple of years ago, he said, look, I'm in the middle of something, and I got a problem. And he said, I'm honest to God, not sure what to do. Here are my options. So what do you think I ought to do? And again, excuse my language, it's not a bullshit question. It's just that's the way they work. And this young man who was interviewed for the book said, it was the most amazing thing in the world. You know, little, little Evelyn Peters, this little boy, Tommy Peters, age 27, is being asked by Dr. God, you know, what should I do in operating on somebody's mother or father or what have you? And, and some woman who worked there, and, and obviously, even though she's a, a, an MD, it's, and it, it's, you know, it's re- rhetoric, not reality. But she said, I'm 100 times more powerful at Mayo than I was before because we practice team medicine. Right. And, uh, you know, and that, so part of the answer is hire for EQ. Hire nice people. And hiring it. Well, the wonderful one. Oh my God, I love this. And oh my God, am I pissed off that I didn't find it until after my last book came out. What's that? Uh, it was a story reported on internal Google research. Mm, right. And they had studied two things uh, best employees, most innovative teams. And, and, you know, if you use the G word Google, you know that the research was pretty tight and not you know, not, not anything other than top flight. And in their top employees, there were eight traits that, that uh, were the most important and one through seven were all soft things. Right. right. Uh, listens, I respect you. Uh, and they did the same damn thing with teams and Google does something which disgusts me and people are classified as A players and B players, which right. I do get sick in my stomach on that one, but it is a brilliant tool for demotivating 50% of the population. Uh, And what they found was in terms of innovation is the B teams beat the hell out of the A teams. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, you can imagine an A player at Google IQ of 315 is absolutely certain that he is the smartest human being God ever put on earth. And he thinks you're charming, but and, and that was one of the things that came out on the bad side of the list in the, in the, in the A team, too much intellectual bullying. Yeah. But, you know, again, point being that, you know, you could say, oh, yeah, your EQ thing, Tom, is really great if we're talking about a hotel. But it's really great in the tech part of right. the Google organization and just as bloody important. Yeah. And so, you know, you talk about putting people really first? Like why, why the need to insert the word really? Is that because companies say things like, oh, people are our most important asset, but they don't really mean it? How do you really? What it, what it really means is that you passed the test. <laughs> and I said, I did my last book. It was my first book in the modern world, meaning you know, in 10 years or something. 
Uh-huh. And suddenly, instead of going to bookstores, I was doing podcasts. Yeah. And this is probably not accurate, but it's, I let's say I did 20. And the wonderful news was that 18 or 19 were like you and the people were prepared. And I don't mean prepared because they'd read every line of my book, but they were you know, ready to have an intelligent interview. And I swear to God, 15 of the 19 prepared people always started by saying, Tom, you write a lot about people. And I was an old Navy sailor, and I will not use the language that went through my head in this particular incident, but it was, what the blank else is there to write about? Right. Uh, I, I, had, I used Twitter a lot, and uh, I had a testy conversation about a week ago with somebody, and they said, we really get what you're saying, Tom. People are our most important asset. And my response in print was bullshit. You didn't get it at all. People are not the organization's most important asset. People are the organization, period, all stop. I don't remember whether it was on that list or not, but one of the things I said is wash your mouth out if you ever use the term HR again. Yeah. Uh, I am not a human resource. I was an only child, and on the night of November the 7th, 1942, my mother popped me out, and let us say at 4 a.m., my father got to come into the birth room, and my father, Frank, looked at my mother, Evelyn, and, and they've been trying a long time for this child, and said, Evelyn, how wonderful it is. We now have our very own human resource. Uh, <laughs> Well, he didn't say that, damn it. And people aren't resources. People aren't assets. People are people. Right. And, uh, and, and so it's, I mean, and the other thing that's really so important without going off on yet again, the, the longest thing in the world is it's incredibly important. And I just talked about it a little bit with the COVID world, but it's incredibly important in the artificial intelligence world. You know, they talk about AI versus IA, artificial intelligence versus intelligence augmented. And, you know, bringing the people part more front and center, to my mind, is clearly the best way to differentiate yourself. I've I've had similar reactions when we talk about lean manufacturing as a methodology and people will write things. There are articles titled something about the people side of lean. And I kind of cringe the same way. I'm like, well, wait a minute. It, <laughs> well, excuse it me. What's the other side? Right. Yeah. Um, well, the, 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 my, my shorthand for this, which again, I think is somewhere in that paper uh, is what is an organization? People serving, people serving people, right. leaders mm-hmm. serving the frontline people who do the work, who in turn serve the customer. Right. And two key words in that sentence, people, service. Right. So in, in that list of the, 21, the 29, sorry, number ones, the first one, all capitals, training, training, training. Now that's, that's not a sexy issue. Why do, you know, Stanford MBA, McKinsey Mind, you know, training. Why, you know, people might look and say, Tom, why are you writing about training? Well, I'll jump to the punchline and then say more. And my punchline is, if you don't think training is important, ask an Army general, ask a Navy admiral, ask a police chief, 
ask a fire chief, ask a symphony conductor, ask a director of a movie. Uh, and, and, you know, they're, they're all exactly the same. And it's just so insane and stupid to me that that is so obvious for a symphony or a four-star general in the bloody army, but it doesn't seem to be obvious to the average business person. Uh, and, you know, that quote that I used uh, came from uh, a guy by the name of Chester Nimitz who ran the Pacific Fleet of the United States during World War II. Right. And when Pearl Harbor happened, the Navy was pitifully unprepared. Uh, and, yeah, we lost a lot of ships in Pearl Harbor, but it was Nimitz's – I don't know what it was in those days. It wasn't a fax. It wasn't an email. It was Nimitz's, Nimitz's communication with the uh, guy who ran the Navy. And he said, the secret to us coming back is training, training, training. It is not more ships. They just hadn't had the money. They hadn't had the time. They hadn't had the interest. And so, uh, you know, I've also said about myself, and I think it's related. I said I'm a pretty good speaker, but I sure as hell am often not the smartest person in the room. But maybe thanks to my parents, among other things, there is no living human. This is really arrogant. There is no living human being on earth who can out prepare me. And it's all about preparation. There's a wonderful one-liner that I love that is attributed to Abraham Lincoln. Right. Uh, I think he was giving a management lecture that day. And he said, if somebody gives me seven hours to cut down a tree, I will spend the first four hours sharpening the axe. It was something like and, that. You know, and, and it just seems so obvious to me. And, and, and again, one of the things I think I say in there is if you had a, and this is back to generals and admirals in part, if you had a 45-minute tour de horizon with the CEO of a pretty big company, you would hear gajillions of things about the new tech investments, and the word training would never pop out of that person's mouth. Uh, and I think it's ridiculous. Uh, but, but again, I, I really think, this is one of those times when the one-liner is key. Ask an admiral, ask a general, ask a fire chief, ask a police chief, ask, you know, you and I were having a prior conversation about Chernobyl, ask the operations director of a nuclear power plant. And, uh, you know, you, you don't really have to, yeah, it's like I always laugh. I, you know, I was an old Baltimore Colts fan and then a 49ers fan, but I live in Patriots world. And I said, you know, Bill Belichick calls me in and I do a study of the organization and I sit down with coach Belichick and I say, you know, really studied your football organization. And I want to say one thing, first, your players are very important. And second, having practices is very important. At which point Belichick reaches behind him, takes one of his 73 Super Bowl trophies, throws it in my face. And that's the last thing you ever hear from Tom Peters. But isn't that accurate? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, obviously it's bloody true to a seven-person purchasing department and God alone knows to an automobile dealer that people who are trained and learning and growing, that's the ball game. Well, Why I in hell do I have to waste my time at the age of 77 saying, 
training. I mean, God's <laughs> sake. But know, I think somebody with a, I, I said to I said to somebody at one point, <laughs> if you really want to understand all my work and, and, and understand the full intellectual power of it, if you want to understand the book of mine, you must produce for me a signed slip of completion from the fourth grade. You know, that, that, you know, I've got all these quant degrees from grade schools. It does not take third year calculus to understand that people who are well trained are, I mean, Jesus. Well, you tell me, now, you tell me, stop asking me questions. Why in the hell is it obvious to a fire chief and a police chief, but it doesn't seem to be as obvious to even somebody who's gotten rich as a car dealer, uh, you know, let alone the people, let alone me who is running a $75 million division embedded in GE or whomever. Why? Is you it, tell me. My, my, I, I mean, mean my, I have to tell you. My first, yeah, I mean, my, my first, I guess you were asking for uh, a rhetorical question, but I'll, maybe, but I'll answer it. I mean, is it because like ego gets in the way that, that executives, even though they've had education, do they think like, well, I don't need training and training is maybe it's for some, like if they're looking down upon people and uh, it's something yeah. for the human resources instead of investing in people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you, I wish, I wish I had the skill and it, again, maybe embedded in that paper to, to use the whole quote, but there's a, a book written by somebody who's serious and uh, he is, he has sat through a meeting a uh, operations meeting, results meeting at a big company. Uh, and it's incredible stuff. And they talk about teamwork and they talk about how they did all those kinds of things. And our buddy who is writing the book turns to the CEO and he said, this stuff is so obvious. Why do you think that other CEOs don't do it? And the actual answer to the question, which I'm just simply repeating you, is the guy said, you know, I think they're embarrassed. You know, it's 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 too simple sure. in, in a way, and, and and I think also the part that you say, you know, well, well, they're here; they ought to be trained, or we shouldn't have hired them. And <laughs> and it's you know, which is the same thing as saying, well, he came from the University of Michigan, you know, and now he's here with us and you know, playing for the Lions. We don't need to train him; he should have been trained there. Yeah, but when you, you but talk it's about that, bad. it's that's it's that low IQ a a, dis, a discussion, which is. Yeah. I mean, it, obviously it frustrates me because, you know, I've had to write 18 books and fundamentally I'd love to have your royalty money, but every damn one of them says exactly the yeah. same thing that all the others say. And, you know, please buy all 18 by all means. But, I mean, sort of like you say, put people really first. You could also use that word and say training people really because organizations will go through the motions do yep. a poor job of training. This happens in healthcare. Then when something bad happens, they throw the employee under the bus when it was a matter yep. of bad systems, poor training, bad supervision, bad management, whatever you want to call it. It's, re it's really unfair to people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my, again, what I say is every company ought to have a CTO, but instead of a chief technology officer, it ought to be the chief training officer. And he or she ought to be on the executive floor with the COO and the CFO and, and, and the other top, top people. But yeah, it's obviously, you know, particularly the, you know, don't, don't, as you said, don't get me going on the healthcare issues. Right. Uh, 
on, on any dimension. I, I got to know the, the guy at Johns Hopkins who did the checklist, you know, Peter Pronovost, and this is a slight digression, but the checklist, uh, there's a book called Checklist written by Atul Gawande, and Gawande right. said in the book, Peter Pronovost has saved more lives than any MD in the United States with the checklist. But the fascinating thing, which you know better than I, given what you do, is Pronovost said the real breakthrough was understanding that the checklist, he didn't use these words, isn't worth a damn unless the culture's right. Right. Because the checklist says that the nurse has to be able to say to the surgeon, you only washed your hands for 15 seconds. And, and, and again, as you know from healthcare, if there's, a, if there's a single place on earth where you don't tell the you don't tell the surgeon, excuse me for using crude and old-fashioned language. You don't tell him this fly is unzipped. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a huge cultural change. Well, and checklists, back to your point about how things get calcified, you're bureaucratic. There are organizations that will go through the motions with the checklist, and then there are organizations where it's really the culture, the right kind of culture. Yeah. You, you know, you said you triggered something else that's, pretty closely related. Well, this is, both of these are, are related. Uh, I was at a pri private dinner near home, just a social dinner. And I was sitting next to a guy who is a very big deal in the investment world, not a Buffett, but you know, up there with the high and the mighty. Um, and I don't know what you're talking about, but he said, do you, do you know what the number one failing is of CEOs? And I don't know where I got it, but I have the gift or the whatever of being a smart ass. And so I said, well, I can think of 50 things that are wrong with the average CEO, but I'm not sure which one I'd put as number one. It wasn't that we were having this sobering conversation, but he looked at me and said, number one is clear. They don't read enough. They don't read enough. They, they, aren't, they aren't professional students. And then I ran across something by, from Charlie Munger, who, was, who is, I think, still... Warren Buffett's number two, and he right. said, you know, you would just be astonished uh, by how much Buffett reads. And the second thing I wanted to say about the training thing, which I think is pretty directly related, our dear friend who saved a jillion lives in the Potomac River, Sully Sullenberger, right. as I read the stuff, and I never did read his book, I'm so I can't, can't say I did that, but his big deal is he was – at, I don't know how old he was at the time, but he was not a child. He was 50 or something like that when he, when he had the event happen. He loved flying, and he was a student of flying, and he was always studying and always trying to keep up. And, you know, a lot of the reason that he reacted so well is he was better prepared, you know, than, than the other folks. And, and again, it seems so simple to me. And, you know, obviously, and it's a perfect example, you know, Chernobyl or Sullenberger, you are dealing with a very sophisticated technological machine. So you can't say they didn't invest enough in the technology. And yet it was those instincts to pull things together. Right. Uh, you know, that, that led to his being able to do them the, the truly miraculous thing he did. I've, I've seen him speak um, and, and he'll talk about how checklists were so important. There was no checklist for that exact specific situation. He'll say there was no checklist for what happens when you're taking off from a New York City airport and both engines are taken out. I'm like sorry, the wrong river. I've had it. I had it in the Potomac. I, oh, but, oh, yeah, the Hudson. But um, 
But he said, you know, the, the, the skill of what he and his co-pilot did, and he gives so much credit to his co-pilot, um, Jeff Skilling, is that they were able to figure out which checklists to pull from. Yeah. And the I love that. I never heard that. That's brilliant. And the culture of teamwork made sure that one of them was flying the dang plane because yeah. planes crashed when both pilot and co-pilot were trying to figure things out. No one was paying attention to altitude. So that's yeah. brilliant teamwork. And that yeah. comes from training. Well, and I remember, which is also the checklist thing in that regard. And I think Delta Airlines was one of the first to do this. They really pushed hard on the culture of the co-pilot is allowed to tell the pilot that he's full of shit. Excuse my language. Because, you know, it's surgeons and whatever are have nothing on pilots and co-pilots. Right. And the co-pilot was told, I mean, this is a little bit of what we've been doing in the, in the policing situation by saying you are required to stop so-and-so if his knee is on the neck of the, of, of the offender. And this didn't say to the co-pilot, you're allowed to interrupt the pilot. It said your performance means that if you've got a problem, you tell the pilot. Uh, you know, you, you do that. This is a required task, not it's okay. Right. Right. And that was, and, and again, the thing which I guess didn't respond, surprise me in retrospect is that was a BFD of the, you know, of the first order. Right. Von Pronovost thing was, was uh, the checklist thing was based on a kid who was burned in the shower at home who went to, God's gift of hospitals, Johns Hopkins University. I was a Baltimore boy, so it means more to me than, than many. And fundamentally, there was something they should have done for the kid in the ER, but the head resident was either taking a pee or what have you, and you couldn't do this thing until you had the permission of the head resident at, at, at that point in time, which, you know, a, it makes you want to weep, and it is an incredible tragedy, but relative to what you and I have been talking about, it is an insane systems tragedy, and right. what you and I have been talking about, it is as normal as normal can be, comma, alas. So there's two more things I want to ask you about um, while I've got you. Um, management by wandering around and then talking about women in leadership. So first off, you know, management by wandering around, I think it's one of those things where maybe people haven't read your work, they've heard about it, and then it gets watered down. And, and I think an example, um, a manufacturing manager I used to work with when I was in that industry, really prided himself, he would go and walk at first thing in the morning and go shake every person's hand. But oh, the problem I saw was that he wasn't taking the time to stop and engage with anybody. But so I wanted to ask you, since we've got, I think, the source, how do you, you've got a much richer definition of management by wandering around. I don't have anything to say. You got it right. (laughs) Uh, Management by wandering around is not about inspection. It's exactly about what you said. It's about, it's 90% social. Uh, And I had, again, a big Twitter spat about, you know, can you call a work team family? And, you know, some of the purists said, no, that's only my whatever, whatever. Well, and I'm willing to, if you require me to drop the word family, but I will say any workplace is a community mm-hmm. in the capital C sense. And I'm going to jump ahead and then I'll come back. 
I, uh, my wife and I, it will not happen this year, but typically uh, spend a couple months of the winter in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And we have a house, which is more appropriately called a shack that's by the sea and wonderful beach. And here I am, this is two years ago, so tragic, 75 years old, walking on the most beautiful beach in the world and thinking about MBWA. <laughs> Tell me if there's anything more tragic than that. But at any rate, having at that point been talking about it for 35 years, uh, I had a real, I hate epiphany, but I had a real epiphany. And my epiphany, which is exactly what you're talking about, is this. If you are the boss and it's 1 a.m., and you're in the distribution center with the all-night crew. And if it is not fun, I mean, yeah, you, yes, you learn about what's going on. If it is not pure, raw, unmitigated fun, I want you to do me a favor. Go home, go to your desk, get out a pen, take a piece of paper, and resign your job as a leader. If, if you don't get off on the people who are doing the work at 1 a.m. And, 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 you know, I, I really – and these words – it's okay to use these words like fun. And, and when I say that, what, what goes through my head is this wonderful line from, you know, one of the all-time, maybe the all-time National Football League coaches, Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi. And the wonderful Vince Lombardi line, and I would dearly, dearly ask our uh, watchers, listeners to not say good line, but just reflect on this a little bit, is Lombardi said, you do not need to like your players, but you must love them. Mm. And this is coming from the toughest guy who ever walked on the face of the earth. And, and you know, you can make your own translation, but, but the idea is really central to this whole time. I, kept, I, I remember we did a, there was a woman by the name of Pat Carrigan, and she was the first woman to run a, a GEO, GM parts plant. And we went to see her for a TV show. And uh, she was so fabulous at what she did that actually the state legislature of Michigan gave her a congratulatory letter when she retired. Uh, but what I remember is MBWA is one of the people we talked to with the camera on was the head of the UAW in that plant, which had a couple of thousand employees. And, you know, he said, he said, let me tell you about Pat Carrigan. He said, Pat Carrigan comes to work on whatever the hell it is, the 17th of September, XXXXX. And he said, I knew she had come in. And he said about a half an hour later, uh, you know, union head in a big plant is a guy who's got an office. It's not a part-time job. And she said, he said a couple of hours later, I hear a knock on my cubicle. And, you know, I open the door and there's this woman and she said, I'm Pat Carrigan. Can I come in and chat with you for a while. He said, I have been in this business for 25 years and a plant manager has never come to my office to ask if he or she, he in this case, can sit down and talk. I am always summoned. And, uh, you know, it's the, it's the, and then I was talking with frontline people and, and this is just not believable, except unfortunately, given my training, I do believe it. And I had a bunch of these, tough old dudes who, you know, been around and we got them right after they came off of the night shift. And 
I asked kind of the question based on the union leader thing. And some said, you know, I haven't seen a plant. I don't know. Maybe we don't have a plant manager. I've never seen one. And, and, uh, you know, and it's, and it's, but, but again, it's so easy to say it. And we're back to only hire nice people. You got to be somebody who gets off on people. You know, to use incredibly sophisticated language associated with all of my PhDs and other degrees. If you don't get off on people, you shouldn't be leading people. If, 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 you know, this is, this is, well, if you're, if you have nine people on your team and you do not know the names of all of their children and what their grade level is, uh, I'm more than willing to toss you out onto the street and say, thank you very much. I'll give you a good severance, but you don't belong here. Yeah. Well, and it's not, it's not being intrusive. It's no. the reason you want to know about their kids is you give a shit. Yeah. You know, you're coming to work for me. You're spending eight hours a day. Uh, and, and I got a capital F family, lowercase f family community. If we're going to get something done, we got to give a damn about each other. Yeah. And I'm not prying into your personal life. It's And, and I've also put it, you know, the, the biggest problem in most corporate, many corporations, big corporations, is crappy cross-functional communication. Purchasing people don't talk to the accounting people and so, so on. And this is a little bit changed, to be sure, in the age of WFH. Uh, but I said there is a secret to excellence in cross-functional communication. And the secret is the word L-U-N-C-H, lunch. It's much more important than Oracle. So I'm a purchasing guy, and I'm a proud professional. And you're a finance guy, and you're a proud professional. And we seem to spend half our life fighting with each other. Uh, and, you know, and it, you know, we'll take that example and set it aside. Uh, I, at some point, say, why don't we get lunch? And, you know, here are you and I. We've been at each other's throats for a long period of time. And, and I think I'm probably pretty close to right. Statistically speaking, while we're sitting at lunch, we will discover that both of us have eighth graders who are in the same school. <laughs> and you know the whole world changes then i am still a son of a bitch purchasing officer and you're still a son of a bitch finance officer but when we chat with each other about a problem it's two people who really get off on each other which is a totally different circumstance than i'm the finance guy i know more than you i'm the purchasing guy i know more than you and, yeah. and you know once we got those two eighth grade kids you know we're about to give each other shit but the first thing i say is you know, I hear George is on the soccer team this year. How are those guys doing? And the whole world changes. So I, I, you, I'll take the lunch. You take the bloody software from SAP or Oracle. Yeah. Well, I, I win. I was just going to tell you real quick. I'm, I'm a Michigan kid, and I, my first job out of college was in my hometown at a General Motors plant. And so as an engineer, you know, I was out in the shop floor getting to know. The best advice I got was from – um, the, the the union chairman of the plant who said, get to know the employees. Don't just work with them, get to know them. And yeah. so the one, we, I didn't have an eighth grader, of course, but <laughs> talking to these, uh, to these employees and they would discover, oh, you went to high school here in town. Oh, my kid goes to that school. That president's or the, uh, the principal is a bleepity bleep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't know, maybe. I, I didn't, but but I, how, do you, how do you and I, because you're doing the same damn thing I'm doing. How do we convince people of that? I mean, it's, yeah, it's, as if, it's as if we're, you know, we could convince them 
to learn an arcane new computer language, and it would take seven and a half seconds. Uh, but how can we convince them to, you know, do what you just talked about? Right. And, and I think, by the way, which is really important to our conversation, given when we're having it, uh, and it's not going to come easily, and you have to experiment, but you can do the same thing in a WFH setting. Uh, it's not the same kind of lunch or what have you, but it's, you know, there, I've heard a hundred people say a hundred things, but you know, we're having a WFH meeting with, with 12 people on an important topic and you are really a good guy and you're a huge contributor and the whole damn meeting you're frowning. Uh, well, I'm not gonna do anything about it during the meeting, but you know, many of us have these things called phones and when the meeting's over, I'm just going to give you a call and say, listen, None of my business, but you seem kind of out of it today. And this is not a criticism. It's just things okay. Going on, yeah. And, you know, if you do, and it's infinitely important. Uh, yeah. Just one other to toss in, which will take too much time to talk about. So we won't do anything more than toss it in. Uh, if you will give me a, a room full of 100 managers, and you will ask me how many of those 100 managers are skilled at giving negative feedback, I will respond by saying, stupid question, none. <laughs> you know, it's just, it is, it's, it's giving effective feedback makes neurosurgery look like child's play. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's one of the 872 things they don't teach you at the Harvard Business School. So maybe a final point or, you know, on, on EQ, uh, you, you've been talking for a long time about um, the need to have more women on corporate boards. And there's data that you share. It says, you know, boards of gender balance have 56% higher profits. And, but then beyond that, you, you, you talk a lot um, in, in the, the paper that, that you shared and I'll, I'll link to that in uh, the show notes. That, um, that women are better leaders, uh, like 12 out of 16 different dimensions. Can, can you tell us about about? Yeah, what uh, you know, you can give the link, and it's also in stuff that you can find at TomPeters.com, but there's enough serious research to sink a pretty sizable ship that says that women are better leaders. And the one you referred to was a, uh, Harvard Business Review article, and there were 16 leadership traits, and women well outscored men on 12 of the 16. And as the author said, including the one where you would be inclined to say the men were best, you know, terms like driving for results. Well, you can do this and you can do that, but women didn't use the same style, uh, which is kind of the point to a significant degree. So, you know, the, the research is clear that. Women, there's another, there was another one, a guy by the name of Lawrence Faff. I don't know how the pronunciation is, it's P-F-A-F-F. Uh, and he took 20 dimensions of leadership and women outscored men on all 20 and something like 17 of them with statistical significance. Uh, and, you know, what I, I like to say two things that are important so that I don't get dismissed. A, I'm not suggesting you hire, that you fire all the men. I am suggesting that I'll give you 18 months and I want to look at the stats on gender balance and I want them to be better than today. 
And the other thing, because this one, it's not that I get in trouble, but people who like to diss these kinds of things, I am not saying that men don't listen and women are great listeners. I am talking about bell-shaped curves and what the statisticians call central tendencies. There are good male listeners and there are lousy female listeners, but statistically, sure. the odds are way on the side of better listening if the person is a woman than a man. Uh, and I like, I, I like to talk about, as you know, what we're talking about. And then I also like to put an asterisk in it and say, the thing that got me focused on this women and leadership thing was not women in leadership. It was when I learned the statistics, which basically say women buy everything. If women are your market, it would be kind of nice to have people who understood what needs and desires were, you know, running the joint as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, that, and interestingly, or maybe it's boring as hell, it's not boring to me, the women buy everything. We've long known that women buy all the consumer products, 85% or something like that. But in 2020, over 50% of professional purchasing officers are women. Mm, wow. So their role in the purchase of commercial products is just as significant, essentially. Uh, and then I have to add one, which again, I'm adding it for you because you're talking about the, you know, your work. My comment after watching you know some real shit shows that went on in hospitals uh in the early days and alas probably still today is i said i'm going to pass a law and my law is that no male is allowed to be a hospital ceo and you know i'm not 100 serious but i'm directionally serious and right. and it's not statistically valid but it's not trivial this thing that we see again and again and again that virtually all of the countries that have had the best COVID-19 reaction have been headed by women. And yeah, I'm incredibly well-trained in statistics, and I know the sample size is not that high, but I'm also suggesting, you know, maybe it ain't coincidence. Yeah. And, and I don't really think that's, I do think that's, it's not coincidence. Uh, and, and this thing that they found, you know, the Harvard Business Review. It's not being soft to say thank you right. and to listen and to do what you were talking about in the plant and get to the point where we both understand that our dads were on the 19xx football team together at the high school that's 15. There's nothing soft about that. Yeah. You want soft, baby. Let's go back to the recession of 2007 and look at the derivatives of shitty, useless mortgages that were turned into pieces of gold that turned out to be pieces of crap. Right. Numbers. Anybody, you know, my line has always been, anybody who's been in business for three years or more who can't fake the numbers, you know, that's that's a no-brainer, right. uh, and and I don't mean in the illegal or immoral way, but you know we all know how to fudge numbers. Numbers are soft; they're abstractions. And my relationship with you is not an abstraction. Mm -hmm. That's rock solid, hard stuff. 
Uh, there's some investment guy, and I don't remember the quote, I think it may be in the piece that you've got, who says the basis of all success is the quality of the relationships. Yeah. And it's true. Yeah. And it's as true in AI world as it was in, you know, where the phone was a tin can and a yeah. piece of copper wire hooked to another tin can. So one, one thought you've, you've sparked from what you've said. Let me say this back to you and, and see if you agree or not. If you say a, a company, an organization is um, a community, it seems like it, it makes good business sense for the community of the company to very much mirror the community that they are serving or selling to. Seem like a fair statement? Definitely. And it's also important to serve the community in which your workers work. There's an old friend of mine by the name of Bo Burlingham, and he wrote a wonderful book called Small Giants, the subtitle of which approximately is companies that chose to be great instead of big. And he had four attributes. And, and one of the four great attributes of these companies is he said they absolutely were totally engaged in the communities where they where they were. And, you know, they, you know, if, if I've got, you know, well, to me, it seems, again, as obvious as the end of your nose, but, but uh, well, again, as I said, it's community is a bigger word for me. It should have been a bigger word a long time ago. And particularly when we look at this world of COVID-19 and the racial inequality that we have discovered, uh, and, I, and it is discovered, which just embarrasses the living hell out of me, because I was pretty heavily involved in the civil rights uh, movement era uh, in the 60s. And I taught the first course that they ever taught at Stanford on, you know, kind of affirmative action and so on. And I thought it was a done deal. Uh, and we found out it's not a done deal. Right. And again, I think that it's going to take hard work. It's going to, I, I don't, I don't want to make this political, but it is, uh, anybody who doesn't think there's white privilege, uh, unfortunately was born without a brain. Uh, you know, I, I said to somebody, right. the, the, the three, three kinds of people who I most dislike in the world, are mass murderers, number one, child and spouse abusers, number two, and number three is successful people who think they deserve their success. Mm. You know, why am, wow. why am I brilliantly successful? I have had a lot of success, and the first 98% was an excellent choice of parents. Mm. <laughs> you know, I was born white, male, Protestant, American, in 1942 and I would have had to work hard to screw it up. Mm. Uh, and, and it's, and it's, and it's really important that we, that we, that we try to understand this. Uh, and it just, there was this, this wonderful piece. I'm sure you've read a hundred of them and it was an African American or black woman surgeon. And it's just a little story of why I wear scrubs all day. And one of the punchlines was, if I'm a black female surgeon and I've got my scrubs on and I walk through Neiman Marcus, they don't treat me like she's going to pick, be a pickpocket. Oh. Uh, and, you know, you really, 
you know, we ain't there. And, uh, and, it, and it's going to take hard, conscious work not to get us there because we probably will never get there. But it's, uh, it's, it's important. It is. It is. Okay. I, you, I've got to run. For, okay. So Thank you. You get, one, you get one last one-liner if you want it, then I'm out of here. All right. Sorry. So one other word that's important to you, acknowledgement. Maybe let's end on that. Yeah. Uh, brilliant. Uh, you and I may do this again together. And the most important thing that I can say right now is thank you. you know, we all really appreciate being acknowledged mm-hmm. by somebody. And, and there is an asterisk on that one that's really, really, really important. Small stuff is more important than big stuff. If you make a million dollar sale for me, you're going to get paraded around the room and, and so on and so forth. The, what I need to say thank you with is when I watch you being under a deadline, nonetheless, spend a half an hour helping George with something that he's got that's important. That's the thing that the man that not demands. That's the thing for which uh, the thank yous are most important. And it's just saying you're alive. You're important to us. Yeah. I care about you. And by God, you know, thank you for doing that kind of thing. And thank you for this fabulous interview. And I mean it. Thank you for being a guest. And, 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 and as a way of saying goodbye, um, I'm sure that, you know, you, you reply to people on Twitter. And the first time you replied to something, I, I, that, that, that made my day. I'm like, wow, Tom Peters acknowledged me. It was a little, you know, it was a little thing. But, but, um, but thank you for that. And uh, yeah, thank well, you for, I, for, for I, I'm delighted to say I have trouble with understanding that. I can't imagine why the hell anybody would say anything. No, uh, but no, seriously. Uh, well, uh, no, but it is to the point. You know, the, the answer is when you take relative to your world as a whole, and you've used me as an example, uh, to write that tweet probably took you 15 seconds if you're a slow typist and 11 if you're, you know, got a pretty fast finger. And, you know, the acknowledgements, it's a nod. It's, uh, you know, I remember one time when I had a, I had a training and consulting company in Palo Alto and it's a pretty big clients and we had, I don't know, quarterly bonus or whatever the hell it was. And I, with everybody gathered around, gave our receptionist the biggest bonus. And I said, now, let me tell you about her. I said, if a client gets here 15 minutes before a meeting, we do not have to make a sales pitch. Just her attitude, her spirit, her engagement. I said, she makes the frigging sale. You know, not this guy over here what, who knows all this stuff, but, you know, the sale is made. You know, we're a company that people would like to work with once you've spent that, you know, that 15 minutes in the, in the, in the waiting room. And, it's, and, and the important thing about anecdotes like that is they aren't hyperbole and they aren't exaggeration. You know, I'll give you the two tons of research if you want, but that's, that's not a cute story. For you and I to end on, it is a deadly PL growth-oriented story. The receptionist makes the sale far more often than the salesperson does. Very good, Tom. Thank you so much for the time and and for um, really you know uh, thought-provoking uh, comments and everything that you shared. So I encourage everyone go to TomPeters.com. Please do buy his books. But Tom, thank you for everything <laughs> that you share. 
uh, freely on the website. There's a lot to learn from there. Well, as you can probably tell, I really get off on this stuff and I enjoy the opportunity to talk about it. So it's a, it's a, it's a great hour for me as well. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.